に上がら関係ねえ<笑> Shall we begin? Into his coming I can do this all day Tear down this wall Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the newest episode of Unscriptify podcast where genuine meets uncensored, powered by Jägermeister. We embark on an exciting journey through the prehistoric realm and delve into the mysteries of ancient life, discussing fascinating discoveries and uh, gaining unique insights about the world where dinosaurs lived with renowned paleontologist Paul Sereno. Paul, thanks for joining us, and are you ready to go genuine, uncensored, and unscripted with us today? Yes, I do. Great to be here. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Uh, for the start, Paul, uh, there must always be a spark, and I know you weren't always interested in dinosaurs until you went to American uh, Museum of Natural History. So can you relive that experience for all of us? Yes, it was. Um, it was uh, one of those things. Uh, I always feel like uh, we're leading very unique lives because events like that, if for whatever reason they didn't happen, you'd be leading a different life. I would certainly. I think I was going to be an artist. I was going to be a studio artist going to New York, but I thought I would trail along with my brother who was applying in paleontology, and I said, "You know, how serious are you? I'm going to tell. I'm going to tell you." And I went to the museum. And I walked into the dinosaur hall, and it, it just it just struck me uh, like a bolt of lightning. Uh, I saw this field. I think what I saw, and it took me years to understand this totally, I saw a life of adventure, and um, I saw a side of science that I really couldn't resist. And uh, it was so sudden that I remember sitting down with the curator who was there to talk to my brother. He was trying to get my brother... Uh, in the graduate program there. And I told him, uh, he, he jokingly said, listen, if we don't get you, we'll get your brother. And I said, you're going to have my application next year. And so it was that sudden. Uh, I really, and I did go there. I went to the American Museum for my graduate school. It was, uh, you know, it was, it was a challenge to get into, of course, because uh, that's sort of the apogee of paleontology. And I had had one course in paleontology. I had yeah. one geology course. I was now going into the apex paleontology program in a geology department. But that sort of symbolizes paleontology in general. Um, it's a field, a Cinderella field that uses, in fact, I do in all my research now, I use molecular biology, geology. I found a human site. I'm an archaeologist as much as a paleontologist now. You got to be prepared for, um, for pulling out... Uh, whatever science you need to answer the questions at hand. And those questions, for example, are, who are these people that are in my dinosaur era, area fossilized? And what do they have to say? It turns out they have an enormous and incredible story to say of archaeology previous to the Egyptian pyramids that I'm involved in, in uncovering. What about the dinosaurs? We've got dinosaur mummies. To answer, that's got, they've got skin and hooves on them, as a matter of fact, the first hooves ever seen. In the sediment, you prepare it off. What is it made out of? The only way you can answer that is with molecular chemistry. Mm -hmm. Now, to bring all the people, bring all the labs that can answer that. And, of course, for the humans that I found in my area, we have the chance of getting ancient DNA. And so mm -hmm. uh, the dinosaurs know. Uh, we, we need to determine if there's any molecule, original molecules in there. Uh, we're not expecting DNA. We didn't find any DNA. We also didn't find any keratin. But you have to be, uh, this is the beauty of the field. 
There, there's one other grand beauty of paleontology before I I move on to another question, which is that uh, I didn't realize when I walked in that museum, but it's true in my lifetime, and it will be true for at least another two lifetimes. And that is paleontology is going to give us as many discoveries as we have seen already in the future. You know, some scientists, some sciences are not like that. Some sciences sort of flower and bloom, and you're already on to the next round because there's nothing much more to discover about, let's say, elements of chemistry. How many new ones have I experienced in my lifetime? Um, paleontology is not like that, and it's not like that for a couple of reasons. I mean, everybody knows about dinosaurs now, even in the heart of the Sahara. It wasn't the case when I walked into the middle of the Sahara 20 years ago. Um, and as a result, we are finding things, even not far from Montenegro, about dinosaurs that uh, we never would have dreamed uh, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I just asked the last time we had a paleontologist. I asked him because I I didn't know what was the uh, consensus of this. How much are we yet to discover about them? Uh, and he he said there's a whole uh, we we can't even imagine how much we don't know. And yeah, there is to be discovered. One of the best metronomes of the pace of discovery is very simply the number of new dinosaurs named per year. And if you plotted that out, it would go from one or two when I entered graduate school or three or four, maybe, to now about 25, 30. It, we're, we're at a rate that's maybe 15 times or 20 times where we've been. And then, of course, there's people like me that love going out and finding, as my advisors would put, putting fruit on the tree instead of just plucking fruit off the tree. And um, that is to say, finding new fossils that really change the field. I have found so much fossil material in the Sahara. There is uh, two containers, 40 feet long. For meter people, that's 13, 14 meters, filled with fossils, 50 tons. I will not be able to study or even name the species that are in those containers. Some of that's going to be students of mine or other researchers. Uh, we will get to some of it. So there's mm -hmm. stuff that will be discovered and stuff that will be discovered on museum shelves. Oh, yeah. Well, well about your expeditions in Africa and Sahara Desert, can you share maybe a memorable moment from one of your expeditions from there, uh, <laughs> which impacted paleontology or your own personal uh, well, you know, experience? I have a few nicknames back here. One of them is Dr. Safety. Another one is Mr. Another one is Professor Reasonable. And there was absolutely nothing reasonable about the last expedition that I ran. It was uh, the challenge of a lifetime for us all, not just physically. Uh, it was to the center of the Sahara, but mentally, because you have to keep yourself uh, totally together under very trying circumstances. I had during the pandemic the chance to hone a team in wait, literally for a couple of years, to the opportunity when we could actually lead that expedition. And by the time we took off, I had a team of 20, a lot of Europeans. There were Spanish, there was a German, there was an Italian, Canadian, a couple of Americans. And we joined a, 
a couple of Nigerians. And we went into the field for 90 days, three months. I personally lost 32 pounds. <laughs> wow. Wow. So uh, I came back thin as a rail. Um, it shows you the amount of uh, effort. Most of that actually happened in the last two months. We were sort of waylaid in the desert. I was very frustrated. I couldn't do anything uh, for the first couple of weeks. And so I was losing about a half a pound a day, no matter what I ate. That's the effort it took to collect what I think will stand as an Olympic record, 55 tons of dinosaurs. Many of them knew. Uh, we were at points, uh, just, you know, we were in the middle of the field season and we went to collect the skeleton that we had spotted several years back and then discovered four or five more. The team I was with felt it was absolutely impossible that we could physically collect these dinosaurs, many of which were 40, 50 feet long, out of solid rock. They said, it's absolutely impossible. And they said that to a camera. We've got it on record. <laughs> and then it's how do I do it? Yeah, how do you do it? Uh, I said, I'm not so sure. I believe we can. And I, I said, I believe we can. And five days later, I said, I believe we can. And two weeks later, I said, I believe. And at the end of that month, we loaded what was about 30 tons onto, we had to come back with the truck, other to the truck, and we did it. Um, it's perseverance. It's team building. I think if you see someone as a leader that is working as harder, harder than you, it's inspiring. Uh, I think when you go there fully knowing that you have a few times to write a chapter in the history books, this is one of them, the next 90 days, mm -hmm. this is our chance. And boy, do we hit it out of the, every month we went out to three different areas, one month. You're going to see film footage from it because we, we shot more film footage uh, and drone footage and IMAX footage than any other expedition ever. We oh, embedded, that's nice. Yeah, we embedded a film crew. I, I did this on my own. I made a lot of films for G. Grant, so this time I didn't know. We're gonna make we're gonna make a film the right way. We're, we we wanna be there at the moment of discovery. Not coming back or coming into the field for ten days and making up some story about what you no, we want the grit. We want those interviews with students that say, I, I you know, I'm sorry. This is this is impossible uh, with with bloodied hands, you know. As we want all that. We want the embedded view, and we got it. And so we we haven't. Um, it's not out yet in documentary form, but it will be in the coming year and maybe two years for the IMAX. Um, the desert scenes are are unimaginably be beautiful. Um, Niger has one of the biggest slices of the Sahara that's untamed. There's no roads. And because there's no roads, it's impossible to police. It would resemble uh, our West, the American West, a century ago, maybe mm. a century and a half ago, where you went with a stagecoach. And what would you do if you knew there were bandits out there? And there are some bandits out there. We have plenty of bandits in yours at uh, in in our city in Chicago, and I imagine you have some, probably a lot <laughs> yeah. in Montenegro. <laughs> in but piece. different kinds. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. In my opinion, they're actually more dangerous. Uh, you know, like, and, and you get this sense when you invite somebody from the Sahara to Chicago, they they're worried about Al Capone and they're terrified, and they're almost ready to go back at the airport if you don't meet them. 
and convince them no matter <laughs> what die at least I'll protect you. Yeah, Sahara goes for us. Yeah, you know, and 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 it's sort of like when you go to the Sahara, everyone thinks that the country's had a coup now, and they think that oh my god, if you put your toe in that country, you're gonna die. I just was there in December. No, I'm I'm alive. But when you want to lead an expedition and you know that the spotlight is on you, anything happens to your team, the world is going to know about it. I can't yeah. afford to have a hair touched. Well, then you have to understand how we had our security back in the day in the West. You brought it with you. And so I formed a small army. And I took <laughs> 65 armed guards out there is to make sure absolutely nothing happened. Not because Niger is more, on average, Niger is far safer than here. We, there's nothing, we don't have the quantity of guns we have here. We can't even have a celebration of a Super Bowl without, you know, winter, without having something happen. Uh, and it's extremely rare there, but it is an untamed country, the size of France. That's my field area. And yeah. I right into it. We're going to work in Marseille today. Tomorrow, we're going to go up to Paris and that's our shield area. And then we're going to go over to Bordeaux. That's literally what we did. And we ended up coming back with 55 tons of new material, which is just astounding. Astounding. Mm -hmm. And the the import is that this is one of the last continents you can do this on. There's only so many. Earth is only so big. There's only so many continents. Yes, paleontology is going to give us beautiful finds for another century, a couple of generations. Absolutely. But writing the story of a continent, what happened in the Cretaceous? Upper, lower. What happened in the Jurassic? Upper, lower. This is the prime, prime time dinosaurs. We got a few dinosaurs from Tanzania, a couple of ones from Kem Kem. I found a few there. Got a couple from Egypt. Niger has the rest of the story. I mean, it's just an amazing. We're going to describe a species of Spinosaurus that's going to knock kids' socks off. Yeah, this year, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. is that what keep you invested in this pursuit in what would be basically bringing back uh, dinosaurs in life? Not just dinosaurs. You said you are basically archaeolo archaeologists now, people and everything. That's only what. That's one side of a double-sided coin for me. My motivation. That's one side. It's sort of, you want to make a mark. You want to do something that's going to be lasting. And some of it is theoretical, but quite frankly, you have some bright ideas and you publish them. I had a few of those, uh, you know, about uh, evolution, about systematics, and I have a few that I, I, I'm really honing uh, for the future. But ultimately, when you can change the ground that we study by finding a motherload of dinosaurs from Africa, that's going to, that's, that's going to leave a mark. And so that drives me as a scientist. But the flip side of that coin, and it's always been important for me. In fact, the story that is not told about me going to the American Museum is what unfolded uh, after the first year there. And this is what unfolded. The first year was out of a dreamland, which is much of my life, but it was out of a dreamland. I mean, I went to Australia, an island off the coast of Australia to collect horned tortoises with one of the curators. Then I went up to the Berry Reef and started my diving career afterwards. And we found this horned tortoise. And then later that summer, uh, another curator took me 
to the, he tasked me with driving to 7,000 feet in the Absarica Mountains in Wyoming. And then we would hike up to 10,000, 11,000 feet and collect this. We didn't know what it was. It turned out to be a Titan of your skull. He, he had money. He painted it pink, elevated it on a helicopter since the terrain was so rough. It was about three or 400 pounds. We, 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 we couldn't get it down. And he deposited it in the back of a truck, and I drove it all the way to New York. It had two tanks of gas. Unbelievable. And on and on. My, But I had a crisis. I was sitting there one day in the museum looking out at and, and there were riots going on in Central Park. And I thought, you know what? This is everything I could have dreamed it could be, except that what difference is it going to make to your average person? Like, is it really going to make a difference, whatever I do, whatever I find? I mean, seriously, I could name a few dinosaurs if I'm lucky. I don't even know if I could find anything, but if I could, I mean, and then I'll grow old, gray, and fossilize myself, and the world Will, will we blow it up perhaps or what influence would I have? And I decided that I couldn't become a paleontologist. I have to do something where I could make a bigger impact. And I started looking around for potentially another career and in, in history or political science or something. And then I did a project that would ultimately be my dissertation. And it was very adventuresome as almost everything that I do. It, it was going around the world. I wrote some grants and they all came through and I put $13,000 in cash in a money belt and I headed off to China. I had a ticket to China from New York and eight months later, I had a ticket from London back to New York and in between was the continent of Eurasia and I traveled 5,000 miles in China. This is back when China was just opening up, 1984. We didn't recognize that in Mongolia, but I got in there anyway. I was the first to get back to Roy Chapman's sites, the sites that led me to this discipline. When I walked in that dinosaur hall, I thought of Roy Chapman. Then here I was, I fell down on my knees. I got to the flaming cliffs before any other American in 1984. I will write the story of this. I got It was unbelievable. Then I got on the Trans-Siberian, went all the way to Moscow, did all sorts of strange things, survived, went through Poland. There was the east-west German wall at this time. I shot 500 rolls of film and got it out. And I came back here and realized, you know what? This discipline is going to teach me more about the world than I could ever learn in multiple degrees. Number two, I learned that everybody is interested in their history. Even the, the Chinese and the Mongolians, of course, they were interested. There was all these museums that I got to first that the Westerners sort of heard about. There's the Gong Dinosaur Museum. And all the local people, they want their dinosaurs. And I realized that even in our West, before I had left my dissertation, we had the Museum of the Rockies. We had new museums in Utah. Now, there's far more dinosaurs out there than there is at the American Museum because we've stopped taking them to New York because Montana wants their dinosaurs. And... Seattle wants their dinosaurs, you know? And so I realized this again, maybe subterranean, uh, in a subterranean extent, but, and so the flip side of the coin, what makes, what drives me is that I have collected more than a hundred tons of dinosaurs from Niger alone. I've that's, I've collected a hundred human burials. 
30 of them intact. I have a woman holding a child from 9,000 years ago. That's older than the Egyptians. I've collected from Niger, and I have in Chicago, more artifacts and fossils than all white people collected together in the history of Africa. How could, how could I do that? Because they know I'm going to return them, but I'm not just going to return them. I'm going to work with them to take an absent paleontology program, a need for a museum, and turn it into the world's first zero energy museum. So we have plans. That's what we're, we have plans for an institute of patrimony. The first curators are coming to my lab this summer. And a overall 15-year plan, but a five-year, five-year, five-year. And we have designed, in fact, they've won awards already, the world's first zero energy museums. They've given us the island in the middle of the capital to build this museum because Niger has Africa's dinosaur story. They have Africa's pre-Egyptian story. There's nobody that can compete. It's like having your own pyramids. And then they have an island that's got all the natural history of Parc Dublave. So I have a vision there. And I also, the, the place where all the fossils and humans come from is really the center of nomadism. You know, I got to outer Mongolia where Roy Chapman Andrews was. And by the time I got there, even when I got there, you could still see a few nomads on those Bactrian camels, but there were others speeding around in mopeds. And there, there, there's so few of them in China and outer Mongolia that their way of life is really now gone. And the nomadic way of life, which is a very distinctive human mm -hmm. culture, is basically alive and well, only in the Sahara. And yet there's not one museum from Mauritania all the way to the Nile River that puts on display nomadic cultures, the cultures that lived before them. Not one. Yeah. But there will be. That's true. So we're going to have one in Agadez. They, it's been their dream, and uh, the least I could do is help make their dream come true. So we have a plan for a museum there, a plan for a museum. In the, so, And I'm doing things back here in Chicago. So that's a long answer to your question, but I'm driven fundamentally by two things. One is leaving a mark in history and having fun while doing that. And then second, uh, that all the work uh, has real meaning to people and it changes people's lives. I mean, if we succeed, when we succeed in this institute and the museums, because it's just a matter of time, because it's just too good of an idea, um, every single Nigerian will benefit from it. They already know about the dinosaurs they put in the capital. That brings me meaning. And so that's the answer to your question. There's two, two sides to it. Uh, okay, now we obviously heard the, uh, that's a really bad story about uh, uh, the museum you want to build. Uh, uh, but you mentioned it, uh, calling it zero energy. What do you mean by zero energy exactly in its name? Oh, well, um, I, uh, so Niger is a, a fabulous country that, has uh, some of the world's richest uranium mines, which uh, European countries have been using for their nuclear reactors, but they, oh, they have. don't have coal yeah. and they don't have a, they, they don't have a nuclear reactor. So they borrow their energy from Nigeria and they're one of the world's poorest countries. So the first thing I wanted uh, for the environment, mm -hmm. but also for this country 
was a zero energy museum. So I went to uh, Architects and I, I said, uh, you know, I'd like a, you to, can you, can you, can you make a zero energy natural museum? I mean, none exist in the world right now because they tend to be like sarcophagi. They tend to be old limestone buildings. They're very expensive to upkeep, like our field museum, built a century ago, beautiful in many ways, but uh, very unmodern. And we, we're going to start from scratch. So there's no reason we couldn't, or could we? And we could. And so can we use local materials? Yes, we can. We can coat it in tile. As long as we use the modern materials where you need it and local materials where you can, then you can hire a thousand people to do it as well. And so uh, it, it actually, uh, the, the, the plans for, uh, for uh, Niemi, uh, it's called the Museum of the River. Uh, when you go to Niemi, there's this beautiful island in the middle of the capital. It sort of now splits the capital. You have some on the south side and most of the capital on the north side, the university on the south side, the rest of the capital. You know, they're constantly going across this bridge which we actually built. Uh, it's called the Kennedy Bridge. And it, sp- it was the first bridge to span this life-giving river called the Niger River uh, in West Africa. And mm-hmm. it, um, it um, I-, I-, I can show you a picture. I don't know if I can, if you're willing to show a picture of it. Um, yeah, of course. Okay, so I'll show you a picture of it. Um, I'll bring it up on my screen. So... This is this river and bridge I was telling you about. And mm-hmm. it, it is uh, a fabulous center to the museum. There's a little bit of farming on it, but they assured me that's going to stop because they're going to give the entire... Uh, those rocks in the center where you see those trees are some of the oldest in Africa. They, they, they are the birthing of the African continent from microcontinents, the granite that holds this island. The island gets flooded, water flooded. So if you're going to build something on there, you don't want to touch the ecology. You, in fact, want to encourage the ecology. Hippos come there. All the life of Park Dublave comes to this island, and they try to scare it away. Let it come. And then what we can do is on that part that's rising up there, on piers, we can build a museum that is actually the focal point of the two sides of the capital. And we can add walkways to the bridge, take parking to either side. No one parks on this island. And this is what it would look like. And it would... uh, It would have a terrace that would have photovoltaic cells and would actually generate electricity. The museum can't use all the electricity that this museum will generate. And then those exhibit halls, uh, there's a drop-off place here in an outside space where you can look at these rocks that uh, are, are 3 billion years old to understand that this is the birth of Africa. You can arrive by boat if you want. There's a lot of... Um, uh, tourists, you know, paddling around on boats, and you come into this museum, and you start with um, the history of Africa, Niamey, the capital, and then you walk back into the world of dinosaurs. And through each of those halls, represent stages in the evolution of dinosaurs on Africa. And um, again. They're tiled on the outside with clay that is abundant right outside the museum. The tile patterns, as you're going to see as we walk in there, are patterns Mm -hmm. that come from West Africa. They will be made by West Africans. And as you go through the halls, it it sort of has a structure where if you get get a little bit tired, you you, you hang out on the terrace 
where plants are growing uh, from West Africa, the, the, the classic baobabs and other kinds of things. And then you can go back in. And anyway, as you walk through these halls, you end up in the Hall of Ancient Humans, which are the humans that I've dug up, the pre-Egyptian story. It's the last stage of prehistory preserved in Niger, and then into a hall about the ecology of the river, which is the lifeblood of West Africa. Then you can go out and walk on a on a tour across the ecology. You know they have unique river fish. They have uh, an incredible avifauna, as well as alligators and, and hippos and things like that. So that that's the idea, um, you know. And and for now, um, I you know I just might say for um, for uh, for the museum uh, in the desert. Uh, we sat down with sultans and mayors and nomads and said, we come up with three different designs as general themes, and the Oasis design was my favorite, and I'm very happy that it won. And this museum is also a, uh, you got to remember that this is my playground. This is what's outside the doors of the museum in Agadez. So you're looking at uh, an unbelievable desert panorama. And then in the middle of this rises the Ayer Mountains, and so you have orchards and water. Water is life in the desert. It's, but these expanses of grasslands and dunes is, is a special ecology of importance today because we, we need to understand more than ever water. But of course, this is my expedition. This is where all the dinosaurs and humans are preserved. Agata is a mud brick town, so we don't want to reflect the material of that mud brick town as well. But we want, you know, ultimately we're going to, put the museum in a site next to the beginning of a university that they have there and near the airport, near the old city, and it's going to look like an oasis. And so around the outsides, we'll have all the merchants that have their handicrafts in the traditional area. There's the photovoltaic cells because this is zero energy. You got to think about something else in this area, though, that I know very well from expeditions, and that's dust. And that's why this looks like a shell inside a shell. The wind will come from the right side of this drawing at an enormous speed carrying dust at various times during the year. So you need something that's going to protect you against that. But this one gives everybody in the region, because this is first and foremost a museum and a point of celebration for the people in the region, an introduction to the life, the animals, the ecology of the region of the Ayer and the Sahel in the first room. In the second room, uh, the exhibits are not shown, but to give you a feel for what it's going to look like, it's... Mm -hmm. The people of the Ayur, the nomadic peoples, their voice, their music, their dress. In the third room, the ancient peoples, the fourth room, dinosaurs. And mm -hmm. so it's a museum that is not the national repository, but it is a museum of the living desert. It's an idea that they came up with to add living because it is. It's alive and, and well. And on the outside, you have laboratories and places where people can study uh, at the university. And that is the idea and uh yeah it's massive yeah I, it's bodacious i have it's phenomenal yeah and i've always felt that if you can come up with a phenomenal idea you'll have an easier time doing it than to come up with a good idea that you're trying to sell mm -hmm. and oh, that's uh, true so, that's so true. far i mean everybody wants this to happen my mm -hmm. my feeling is that i'm trying to change even the way my own country uh, behaves abroad, 
giving lots of money to certain things. Some of them are perfectly needy. In the case of Niger, it would be humanitarian aid, sometimes basic education aid. But we also have a drone base, and we give military aid. And what I'm saying is, here you have the chance to give this country something that nobody else can. Nobody else can. And it would be generations remembered. They remember the bridge. What about a museum? Museums. Yeah, so that's that's the challenge. Can we take a country that's poor, that has this incredible heritage, and vault it to the f- forefront of paleontology? At the end of my 15-year plan, I'm planning to hold me- meetings there, perhaps our own Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting, if we succeed. That's the idea. And uh, so you ask what drives me, that's what drives me. That's what keeps me up at night. <laughs> yeah. yeah like how far are you with, the, with those museums? So the museum plans are well past even the schematic. In the last trip there, I realized that two leaders, elected presidents, everybody wants these projects. The people at Agadez want the projects. And so they're give, right now we're drafting up the, the plans and the, the paperwork to give the island to the purposes of a museum. This is like step one. And then step two, we'll be raising the money. And I've got some beads on initial money but that's going to launch. And then we, we actually need to launch the training simultaneously of people. I mentioned that two were coming from Niger this summer. They are the museum conservators of the future. They're young women, one from Agadez, one from Niamey. They've already, they've gone through the university. I found them staring at, you know, the dinosaur bones and doing their little projects with the dinosaur bones in my absence. They're absolutely perfect for this. Voted mm-hmm. for it. And that's where you would start. Then scholars and and ultimately preparators. And by the time that those museums are getting ready and being planned, you'll have a cotter of people that will be able to take charge. Mm. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> yeah, it is a plan. And quite frankly, at the cost, because the I I, I can do it cheaper than uh, maybe five times cheaper than anyone else because uh, I I'm planning the exhibits. I'm doing exhibits now, getting ready. We just opened the Dinosaurs of the Sahara, 10,000 square foot exhibit of dinosaurs that we have erected. Because, you know, from my art my art background, um, in fact, paleontology is just like this with art. Did I give up art to go into science? No. I took my art into science. And we're going to envision, you know, this new species of Spinosaurus. Finding it in the field is seeing something you can't see. You see a knob. What else is hiding? You have to imagine it. You have to see it. Uh-huh. Or you'll just walk over it. You won't recognize it. it. It's it's completely intertwined being able to visualize in this field things you can't see, which is the mind of an artist, and in combination with science. And so being doing these exhibits is preparing for the ultimate museum. Mm, yeah. yeah. Mentioning uh, Spinosaurus, uh, you, are, you were pivotal in debunking some major misconceptions about its appearance and behavior maybe and we we understood uh, him as fully aquatic dinosaur but he's not that and <laughs> yeah the, so you know there was a there was a famous german scientist stromer who went to egypt he actually went to egypt to look for mammals but he ended up in the western desert and him and his one assistant found the original bones of spinosaurus 
and Carcharodontosaurus and essentially Deltadromius. He, he didn't name an appropriate bone that would allow me to save that name. Then they were all destroyed in World War II in Munich, Germany. And the dinosaurs went through extinction a second time, all the bones. And my work in Africa started basically rediscovering Stromer's dinosaurs. And so we went to ChemCam and discovered Carcharodontosaurus. I actually had a name for it where I realized, I think it's the same as, as Stromer found. Because if you think of the African continent, I began to realize Egypt across the Mediterranean coast, Tunisia, Morocco. It's all the same latitude. It had a similar environment. That means the animals on one end very likely very similar to the ones on the other end. As you go up and down in latitude, it changes. So that by the time you get to Niger, even coeval beds, you'll get different species. But from Egypt, 2,000 miles to Morocco, I couldn't separate them. And so I had to name it the same thing. It was reinventing Stromer's dinosaurs. Carcharodontosaurus, ultimately a good skeleton of Spinosaurus came to light. It was taken out, out of the fossil market. We found pieces, but we, the skeleton was found. Delta Dromius, that's the, the skull of it back there. Uh, you know, we found that. Um, but the Spinosaur, and then 2014, I wrote a paper saying it was semi-aquatic, sort of like a, a crocodile, enjoying water, but not really fully marine. And then others found the tail, and they made it into this diving marine thing, which is easier to do, let's put it that way, in animation that it might be in real life. We tested that by trying to do it with the dinosaur. I never believed it on the basis of anatomy, but some arguments in on dinosaur life, their appearance are answerable, and some are not. Some are very difficult. Like how well did Tyrannosaurus rex smell? Very difficult to answer that. Or exactly what did the feathers on Tyrannosaurus we probably know Tyrannosaurus rex has feathers. I have a mummy that's got a skin. There's no scales. Probably had feathers. But what color? We don't know. Unanswerable at this point. For Spinosaurus, asking whether it could dive, whether it was a diver, good enough to, it didn't have the power to pursue something. Oh, there's lots of science evidence that you could throw at that one. As long as you can make an accurate model and calculate Say we gave it lungs of this size or lungs of that size or lungs of that size, and we put the air in the vertebrae where we see the air pockets. How light is it? How heavy is it? Could it, could it dive? Let's give it a tail. We know the tail now. Let's make it out like the crocodile tail. We know how much thrust a crocodile tail can put. We know how much thrust you get from the limbs of a crocodile with a little bit of webbing on the toes. How does it work? And the answer is it doesn't. There's simply no way this animal could dive. It's too light. You think it's this big, heavy, huge. No. It has air in not just its lungs, but it's in its vertebrae. And it way offsets what uh, what what it would have in any bones uh, to keep it down. And then second, it doesn't have the power to dive. You really need power to dive if you can't be negatively buoyant. And also, it has a very awkward uh, balance. It wants to tip over on its side if you make the model. And uh, for animals that, have, that are tipsy, you have to have stabilizers. There's no way for it to get up off its side once it was laying down its side in water. So I, I believe it was very adept in the shallows. It could go up to two meters depth without any problem, but that it was not a diver and it would be way too slow to catch anything underwater anyway. And um, 
you know, and I think we've tried to prove that we have a paper coming out in a week, uh, taking apart. The, so this idea that it was underwater was put out there. As a matter of fact, cover story of nature. A lot of people started making animations. And, uh, and so then we wrote a rebuttal to it and then they came back with one idea that no one has challenged the dynamics that we, we put together. So it's like three, two strikes, but then they came back and said, it has denser bones. And in fact, some spinosaurs are divers, other spinosaurs are not. We were very surprised at this because, um, we had actually done the bone sections. And so we went in to examine that idea and, and really found it open-minded, but really found it wanting. I mean, it really, there's no basis for it. And so that paper's coming out uh, in a week, um, just completely destroying this idea uh, that a little bit of density in the hind limb bones meant it was a diver. In fact, there's no evidence for that. And and we we really, it's a long paper, we, we, we go to show that. And so part of the argument in our original rebuttal was fruit on the tree, new fruit on the tree. I'm going to describe a spinosaur from Niger that has no chance to get to an ocean margin. It's as big as the other one. It's going to be a diving animal. Where? You know, it was found next to sauropods in a river deposit next to a carcar dinosaur, the standard fauna. So we've been influenced by where these dinosaurs are found because in fact, in Africa, we have a lot of shoreline deposit. In the middle of the desert, it gets weathered away. You only have pockets. Niger has most of it. There's pockets in Algeria, pockets in Libya. Yeah. But Niger has a lot, a little bit in Egypt, a little bit in the Chemchem. But the, the Chemchem is marginal. Tunisia, marginal. Egypt, marginal. You're looking at an ocean, a near-ocean fauna. Don't yeah. think that that is giving you the whole idea of the continent. When you go into Niger, you realize spinosaurs were inland. I'm sorry, there's no whale that operates inland, you know, whale-sized animal that's actually diving marine. No, they, they are only by the ocean. So this idea, when we find things in the Chemchem and in Egypt and so on, um, it's near the ocean and it's in deposits that it's hard to tell where the animals were living, how much they were living on land and how much they were marine because they're all sort of mixed together. You find shark teeth because it's a delta. And so we're on the delta, in the water, on you, you really don't know. And so, um, especially when the material is moved. And so the way to really answer is that to go inland and say, well, do we find them inland? And the answer is yes, we do. And I, I, I think it's a beautiful dinosaur, uh, but I think it's a semi-aquatic dinosaur. And um, it's a fascinating dinosaur. But it's actually, you know, for me, the scientific importance of it is this. It's not whether it was diving or non-diving. It's this question. Why wasn't it diving? If it had all the chance, dinosaurs had all the chance to become divers. They were living for 150 million years on all the continents, dominating them with so much shoreline because the continents had drifted apart, more shoreline than even today. And they never went in the water. Mm. That's I, I've got a paper coming out with a yeah. a colleague on trying to answer that question. We think we know why. Uh, that's actually the more that's actually the more significant question because many many groups have gone back into the water. You have even waterborne snakes. 
You have mosasaurs that were once lizards. You have ichthyosaurs that were once primitive reptiles. Among the mammals, you, of course, have whales, but you also have pinnipeds. You have sirenians. That there are many animals have, have gone back into the water to lead an aquatic life, turtles. You know, why not dinosaurs? What, what was going on there? And I think that the answer is, is that they were upright, had a stiff body, and they had this fish-like tail. And until they got rid of the fish-like tail, the only way they could swim is like a fish, but their trunk was not designed for that. They were upright. They were moving forward. Mammals had the same problem. And that's why the early part of the mammals, there's no marine forms. But as soon as they got rid of the tail, in the sense of being a small tail, to become prehensile to, or like us, us did. When we go in the water, we swim up and down like that. So does every mammal. And they never, mammals never went into the water until they got rid of the tail. As a, the tail used to be, and it is in Spinosaurus, you see that big tail. What is the tail there for? Yeah, it wags. But the tail is fundamentally there for a big muscle that goes to the hind leg to pull it back and walk. And what they did is they hooked this muscle up to the hip bone instead. It's our butt muscle. They hooked it up, or another one, up to the hip bone so you don't need the tail anymore. Now you can swim any way you want. Until they did that, the only way you could go back in the water is if you were not a very good upright animal and you could just swim away. And that's what crocodiles did. That's that's how ichthyosaurs went in the water. That's how everything before dinosaurs and mammals went to the water. But dinosaurs and mammals started walking upright. Mm-hmm. And your only chance is to get rid of that tail and swim up and down like this. Mammals did it. Dinosaurs did it too, but only after they lost the tail, which is to say birds. So birds immediately went back in the water. So it's a, these are fascinating stories that um, dinosaurs can encourage us to to try to answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but let me ask you this, uh, a little bit theoretical. Uh, when we uh, spoke with Mark Lowden from our Mutas University, paleontologist, uh, and we asked about the controversial scene in prehistoric planet on Apple TV where uh, T-Rex is swimming with two cubs. And he said that he never met an animal who can't swim. Uh, and the evidence did T-Rex swim. He actually thought he was and migration and everything. But do you think that because we still haven't found truly aquatic dinosaur, we won't find him in near or distant future? I think I think we won't, uh, for the reasons I said. And if you ask mm-hmm. me, is there an animal that, um, that 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 can't swim? I would just point to my wife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen any. You know, it's just that's like wow. Okay, come on, we can learn. Um, but basically, swimming is one thing. Pe- dog paddling, which is what we would do if we were thrown in the water without much training, um, mm-hmm. and we're light enough, and Spinosaurus is light enough, and in a Push comes to shove, short. I bet it could paddle. I bet it could do something to get by. Survive. And Yeah, and absolutely. And not only that, but dinosaurs have air sacs, many of them, sauropods. This makes them lighter on average. So yes, like ice cubes, they could float. And to the extent that you can, you can dog paddle and so on. Dog paddling will only take you so far. If you've ever done any diving, and I highly recommend it, I love it, um, and you, you're even trying to follow a turtle, you realize how slow you are. Uh, limbs are pretty useless in water unless you make wings out of them. And very few animals have done that, but and so they just get rid of them. 
and use a tail is the better way. And even that, if it's a long tail and you're swimming like this, that's the old way fish swam with their whole body and big surface. Then they got smart. So you want to be fast. Okay, you have a peduncle and you isolate the tail into two big wings from the body. That's all of your fast fish. That's what an ichthyosaur looks like. If you want to get there, you 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 got to change your whole bodies. So I I, I think that separating, uh, and, and we know this, the dinosaurs got between continents. You know, every once in a while, you know, we we've, we have historical records where elephants have been thrown overboard. Elephants have the advantage of a trunk uh, for helping them breathe. But yes, they can go 100, 200 miles. I mean, we, we know this. Um, and without doubt, sauropods could do the same. And theropods. And I, I don't doubt for a minute that T-Rex would be light in water, looking at the vertebrae and imagining the bird-like lungs that it had. So yeah, I think they could. And I think that this animal was waiting. It, its its limbs are not built for speed. It, it clearly is built for the shoreline and maybe near shore. I wouldn't want to run into it. It had powerful arms and and jaws. Uh, it, it could take land animals, and without a doubt. But it was fundamentally a fish eater based on the dentition and the jaws. Um, let me uh, let me ask you. Uh, among all things, vocalization, polarization, feathers, uh, behavior, those are still less known uh, things uh, to us. What are you most excited about to learn about more uh, in following years? Well, I'm going to tell you something that, so paleontologists um, often in the trying to answer such questions that you just mentioned about animals where the preservation is not complete or the structure that you're trying to look at is simply not preserved. Then we look for secondary clues related to the structure. And then we look at the modern animals to prove those secondary clues. And that's exactly what we're doing today. Yesterday, we had a very excited meeting because I'll tell you that there is an unbelievable crest on this on this minus that's going to knock people's socks off. We, we found it. We're like, okay, well now this is 21st century paleontology. So the first thing we did, we put in a Kent scanner and we scanned it. We wanted to see inside the crest. How much vascularity is there? Because we have to ask ourselves a question. Okay, now we got the bony crest. What did it look like in life? The keratin is not preserved. Was it covered with keratin? Yes, you can see the surface. Did it have vascularity? A lot in this crest. How big would it have been beyond the bow? So you know what we're doing? We're going to those modern analogs. Just recently CAT scan birds that have a bony crest like this that's covered with keratin mm -hmm. to see how much is beyond. What does the bone look like? And the answer is pretty surprising. I Even more than I would have guessed. The answer is don't be too conservative, my professor. <laughs> it's like one and a half to three times. Oh my God. You know, if we, I'd said we have to go on the conservative side uh, when we do this, but even on the conservative side, I bet there'll be a course of people, what? what are they doing? And then they're going to read the details of the paper. So this is what paleontologists do when you ask that question. It's 
can we find, and so this was the argument about the diving spy source. They said bone texture, bone density, rabbit, from one point in the femur can tell you if the animal's diving or not. Because we compare it to all these other animals. Here's the divers, here's the non-divers. And we said, wait a minute. What about those non-divers that you didn't take into account? What about these that you excluded? That was one thing we did. And then the other thing we did is, can we come up with the same density measurement from the section that we made? We had a hard time doing that. And then, oh, there's another bone of another Spinosaurus, exactly the same size. And this one's got a hollow. It gives me a different answer. So you got to be careful about such measurements if you want to make a conclusion like that. But therein lies the method. We call it modern analogs. And if we cannot see something, then we look for secondary clues. We call them correlates, bony correlates. It has to be in the bone. We're to, well, unless we get very fortunate to get skin outlined. And if you can show that in the best modern analogs you have, whether it's a function or an anatomical structure, then you make the case. And that's that's how we're going to make the case. Well, yeah. That's fascinating. And, you know, uh, a lot of that is done by paleontologists first. Why? Because, you know, a modern ornithologist never thought of asking the question, well, how much keratin do we have on this? Let's take the CAT scan because the, the animal's right there. And what would they learn from it, really? Just look at the live animal. But a paleontologist becomes very interested in it. Uh, okay, so uh, perhaps a final one from me. Uh, and maybe you kind of answered this already, but... Uh, uh, hearing you speak very passionately about uh, the fossils, uh, I need to ask, uh, and maybe this is random, sort of, but uh, obviously fossils are pieces of history. They carry millions of years, literally, of, of you know, our Earth history. Uh, is there a sort of, I suppose now that you work with them for so long, is there a still a humbling sort of experience uh, knowing that you uh, hold in hands these, obviously, Earth-making pieces yes um there is uh especially when uh some of the time you have a part of one individual of the species it's the only the only specimen you realize how precious is it precious it is and so that is also part of you know i i talked about and spoke about the need for meaning in my work to reflect on the humans around my work and and then there's the respect for the fossils themselves, which meshes with this. If I do not build, help build, conceive, bring into reality a research program and modern museum, my fossils, the fossils, they're not mine, the Nigerian fossils that I had the privilege to excavate will be destroyed. This is just a fact. Uh, sometimes they're destroyed after you put them in good museums, as we've seen with Strummer's fossils. We tend to look at this as only a problem in the third world. It's not. Uh, there was just a fire in Rio de Janeiro, and fossils, Spinosaur fossils, were lost forever. The only specimens we have of some taxa. It behooves us to try to preserve this piece of history because we may never get it again. That's number one. But the true respect I found once at a very poignant moment in the field was when I started pursuing this human fossil site because it was an extraordinary site in the middle of Gadifau, you know, 
I didn't know what these human skeletons were. I originally tried to felt I was just I should just uh, map it out a little bit and give it to an archaeologist. And I tried to, but there was nobody that knew how to excavate. And I ended up finding and ended up then that I found an archaeologist, but they they wanted me to join the expedition because I knew how to lead an expedition and how to excavate humans and tactics, as a matter of fact. And so and then one thing led to another because I was also a geologist, so I could do the geology. But before the, the site had adopted me and I had to take time off from paleontology to become an archaeologist, which I did for the last 15 years. And at this moment, I was uncovering a burial. And I realized, this is my own species. Those are my bones, fossilized. And sort of the hair went up on the back of my neck. It was a feeling I'd never... When, when you're uncovering a dinosaur, the bigger, the weirder, the wilder, the better. And there's this frivolous sort of excitement about the whole thing. When you're digging up your own bones, you're looking at your history. That's where it really hit me. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, you know, we were, we, were un we were pulling off the sand off of a, what would turn out to be a mother and two children holding hands. It's the most, it, would, it would turn out to be the most posed burial in prehistory, 7,000 years old be the centerpiece of this museum. No one's ever found a burial like it. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, okay, you have my promise. I will protect your bones. You've been there for 7,000 years, peacefully. And now, I've dug up your grave. And the people who buried you, they buried this family, as appears, with flowers. We found the pollen clusters with arrowheads that had never been shot. It must have been a tragedy. And it was a family that was highly respected and they buried them with all this goods for the afterlife. And now I've dug up their story. I realized two things. One, I absolutely could not take these bones apart. Even though they were almost falling apart in front of me, I had to find a way to capture that burial intact. And I had to preserve this burial just like the rest of those fossils. It really struck me. It struck me that I have an agreement. It's an unwritten agreement with the dinosaurs. And I realized it and signed on the dotted line with those humans. I am responsible for your care, given the privilege of digging you up. And that's how I feel about it. You say... Is there, is there uh, a responsibility? Is there a moment? That was the moment. I, I just it, it just uh, hit me. Uh, people were actually clearing tears out from their eyes when they were digging this this triple burial, famous Gobro triple burial. This is actually what it looked like when you um, when you when we were digging it up, and uh, it, it's a woman reaching out, and there's a a five year old and an eight year old. Barry looking at her with the arms and hands together. I excavated this intact. We were hoping to get, uh, we're on the track of getting DNA uh, from the skeleton. And uh, it, it, it's just a absolutely stunning, um, stunning skeleton. Uh, never, never have been found anything really quite like it in the fossil mm -hmm. record. And um, 
So we've, we've looked at this as almost like a forensic files. First of all, I, I reconstructed it in both uh, dorsal and uh, so uh, the, the, what was exposed to the desert. And uh, I'm having, I should have just take you to my library of images. But anyway, um, I've reconstructed it vertically. I cast it. It was a really a triumph of laboratory work so that you could walk around or have the burial twist around like this. And then you totally understand the burial in three dimensions. We CAT scan it. We take all the three humans to the hospital and CAT scan it. We come through a complete 3D view of this incredible burial and the story around it. Um, I think they drowned and were buried then soon after. The bodies were flexible. They were buried ritualistically. There's nothing wrong with any of them. As a matter of fact, when we go, because there are young children involved, you can forensically go in and look at the, the molars and find exactly how many days old they were and what their last days were like from their, the enamel in their teeth. There's no stress history. They didn't starve. Nothing bad happened. They just died suddenly. There's no disease that would do that to a 30-year-old and an 8-year-old and a 5-year-old within a day. And so they probably drowned. They're living right next to a lake. And what a story. Yeah. It would fuck me up to dig something like that. <laughs> no, no, it's just, it's, it's, um, I, I sat there, I was looking over this barrel. I had, I happened to have a donor in the field. At the time, I'm a paleontologist. I actually taught human anatomy for 12 years. And so I know human anatomy far better than most of the archaeologists. But mm -hmm. what was I getting myself into? Well, little did I know. I mean, I'm sober this triple barrel and I I knew how I should probably excavate it. I should excavate it in deck like a dinosaur. So I could tell the story and I wouldn't lose anything from under the burial. I didn't know what was under the burial. And the woman said, you do the right thing and I'll fund you. You do the right thing. So we took it out intact. We brought it back to the lab. We prepared it. And and then we did it again and again. And there's incredible stories. A man buried uh, on a turtle shell. There's a woman just gave childbirth holding the holding infant in her arm. Amazing stories that we found a, a woman wearing a bracelet. And so this hall, and we're going to have an exhibit uh, that will tour the world first, will have uh, the most amazing burials. Now, that's not even the most amazing story from Gobro. Here's the most amazing story I'm going to tell you just in two seconds because it's partly out but not really out yet, but the next paper will bring it out. They are the only people, you see graveyards, multiple burials. That is a, 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 that is a sign of sedentism. You don't have grave sites unless you're living in the area for hundreds of years. You don't have grief sites of infants unless you were there and they were being born. You don't have pottery and all these other things. And so we have all of that at the site. In the middle of the Sahara, no one well, would predict that. No one has ever found that. It took a long time in my geology degree and some really good geologists that I've read out there to figure out the mystery of the site. There were water holes and a big fault that ran right across the dinosaur beds right at this point. And so what happened was they had groundwater coming up and creating this natural lake for thousands of years. It was like Lake Michigan just sitting there for thousands of years. And they lived on these dunes, some of them going into the lake. Reeds grew up around them. 
and that created a hard rock that preserves the grave sites. And so we have the only civilization in the world that peacefully lived for 5,000 years. You have to realize, when I found the site, I thought I was dealing with maybe typical archaeological site. 200 years, 200 good years, people came here. This is the desert, after all. It was the Green Sahara, and that's not what happened. The burials were 5,000 years apart. They start at just under 10,000 years, and the last one is at 4,700 years, something like that. 5,000 years. You know how long that is? That's from Tutankhamun to your grandfather's grave. That's 5,000 years. They lived in the spot for that long. It, it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around it because there's nothing like it, and I would end up being the one that, the, the, you know, so I have to make sure when the story comes out that my T's are crossed and my I's are dotted because if you think there's going to be some people you know, that don't like me going to be saying that I'm all wrong and the dinosaur is a diver. No, there's going to be people saying that, uh, you know, uh, could this be true? But he's not really an archaeologist. He's a paleo. I have to make sure that the story is really good. But believe me, we have hundreds of radiometric dates and this story is good. And it tells the story of a people that had this water source and all the animals you know of Serengeti were coming in and their garbage piles have... Every animal you know of, I mean, crocodiles, they have boars, they have water buffalo, they have elephants there. They have ivory elephant wristbands. And they lived in balance with their nature as hunter-gatherers mm -hmm. without farming. They didn't have the soil to farm. And they had all the trappings of sedimentism, sedentism, burials, like North American Indians never had until they started growing corn. It is absolutely unique in the history of humans, and it happened because there was this permanent freshwater lake in the middle of a fairly periodically harsh environment that animals depended on and were attracted to like a magnet, and the humans were attracted to it too. And they lived in balance with nature in one spot. It's a stunning story. And uh, I, it's it's hard to believe it's that important, but it really is. It's uh, it's a question like, would these people ran into people with cows that were nomads, like the nomadic peoples that live there today? We know this because they went to the Ayer, they got precious rocks from the Ayer, they got their tool rocks from there, and they brought it back to this oasis in the middle of the desert. And yet, they never gave up their way of life. So they had a choice. They could produce food, like the people around them, but then they would have to wander because there's no pastures of grass big enough to... Or they could stay and lead a hunter-gatherer life. That's our ancestral lifestyle. They made the choice. They stayed for 5,000 years. It's an amazing, stunning story. And, you know, yeah. you say, what drives you? I mean, when there's science like that out there, that you discoveries like that out there, isn't it incredible? <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I can see why you are drilled up before every expedition going all around the world. I mean, uh, also, I have this, this question kind of became mandatory uh, because I took a mass, mass extinction story for granted. But then we started this podcast and uh, talked with all those uh, paleontologists. And 
they have differing opinions. What's your take about mass extinction? Oh, you know, I think that mass extinction is a real thing. Mm -hmm. That um, there was one and maybe more than one. They found now an accessory crater uh, at the Cretaceous uh, tertiary boundary. It was sudden. There's so much evidence for a big impact and for what, what, what effect that that had. And, uh, you know, I, I, I truly think that that had changed the course of history. And um, mm -hmm. so I'm teaching a very interesting course that has attracted a huge number of students uh, at the university right now. I have to give my key lecture in it next week. And it's called From Fossils to Fermi's Paradox. And Fermi's Paradox is where is everyone? in the universe, okay? I happen to have my lab in Fermi's old laboratory building on campus when he famously made the first react nuclear reaction. I'm moving into a new lab soon. Anyway, mm -hmm. the reason I bring that up is that I think we're lit, just like, uh, actually a human life is very much like, I believe, like human evolution and the extinction of the dinosaurs in this sense that we're leading, I'm leading one life. And if I didn't walk into that museum on that day, at that time, I'm not sure it would have been a paleontologist. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that the triple burial would have been discovered. It would have possibly have weathered away and never been discovered. Then we're leading a very unique trajectory through time. There'll never be another uh, Paul Serino, there will, there will also never be another Petard Zazovic. Ah, you put some good. And because uh, there can't be. And and so how does this relate to Fermi's question? If you reflect back on the human lineage, you'll understand that just this last year was published a paper on our own genealogy. We understand that after all of the last very accelerated 7 million years that produced hominins and hominids and eventually homo sapiens, all the rest went extinct and we came this close to going extinct. They think there was 1,200 mated individuals in Africa from which all of the rest of us come and we came over 100,000 years this close to going extinct. And had we gone extinct, all of the hominin lineage would be erased and gone forever. So it didn't, and the rest is, as we say, history. And we eventually escaped with language and the ability to eat anything and took over the world. And now are our worst enemies. And so if extinction didn't get us, then we're going to drive ourselves extinct if we don't change our ways. And we need to change our ways. And there's plenty of reason to believe that. And so my answer to the to Fermi's question is that we're much more, I don't care if you have a billion exoplanets, there's a billion people and there's only one Pulserino and there's only going to ever be one Pulserino because there's too many unique events in the history of my life, which would have been lived a different life had just a few of those things happened. I mean, mm -hmm. frankly, a lot of people think I'm crazy and they think, if I di they did what I did, I'd be buried in the Sahara a long time ago. But if I was buried in the Sahara a long time ago, after my first expedition, which was really crazy, maybe Gobro would never have been found. The new species of Spinosaurus, no way. That was in a very remote area. So 
I believe in extinction and I believe it shapes evolution and changes evolution in unpredictable ways. There's simply no way to prepare yourself for an asteroid. And so, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, besides, yeah, they, they have some ideas, but besides, um, you know, the, the chance of evolution, then you throw in the effects of extinction and we have a unique history to discover and a unique history in front of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I I believe you have many more stories in stock, and I would be glad to hear them in round two, because we are running low on time. But yes. before we wrap up, we have a little tradition that we say a quote on our Montenegro language and translate it to English. And I've chosen a quote from our comedian and actor called Milan Lanegutovic, and he said in our language, Najbolji saradnik je mediokritet. To je ideal. On je prilagodljiv, ima karakter berberske stolice. Za svaku bolju da bude odobar. And translated it would be, the best collaborator is a mediocre. That's ideal. It's adaptable. Has the character of a barber's chair to be comfortable for every hours. And I see that you won't settle for mediocre- mediocrity. <laughs> so it was very enjoyable. Yeah, as well. We stay genuine, uncensored and unscripted, and we always will, as we have to order our usual. Share us, subscribe us, and stay tuned until the next Wednesday. Iguzo!